Chapter Thirteen of Quiet Hints to Growing Preachers in My Study. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Quiet Hints to Growing Preachers in My Study by Charles Edward Jefferson. Chapter Thirteen. Selfishness. The crowning glory of the character of Jesus was his unselfishness. For their sakes I sanctify myself. In this golden sentence of his high priestly prayer is expressed the disposition which shaped his conduct from Nazareth to Golgotha. If it is essential that the servant be as his master, and the disciple as his Lord, then to every minister of Christ there comes the call to sanctify himself for the sake of his congregation. It is for his people that the true preacher lives and labors. To serve them is his cardinal ambition, his consummate joy. By serving them he serves God. God and the people cannot be separated in the preacher's work. Thick-witted men occasionally get the notion that they can glorify God by preaching theology, and at the same time scorn their congregation. By proclaiming in the pulpit unpalatable ideas in offensive ways, they pride themselves on serving God no matter how they hurt God's people. Indeed, a man may become so wrong-headed as to think that the farther he gets from his people, the nearer he is to the Almighty. But if a man loves not his congregation whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? If a minister says he loves God, and in his heart slights or despises his people, he is not only a liar, but a murderer of the spiritual life of his parish." This neglect of the people on the part of the minister is more common than one likes to acknowledge. Selfishness may crop out in a man's vocabulary. Because a minister is familiar with the language of German philosophers and Scotch metaphysicians, he may thoughtlessly use this dialect in addressing businessmen and farmers, servant girls and mechanics, uncaring whether they understand him or not. The man with the unselfish heart sanctifies his language for the sake of his people. He trims his sentences and simplifies his periods until his thought stands out radiant and compelling before every attentive mind. He makes himself of no reputation and takes upon him the form of a servant and is made in the likeness of a man. By humbling himself and becoming obedient to the law of the cross, God highly exalts him by giving him access to the hearts of his hearers. A man of sympathy instinctively thinks of the limitations and needs of those with whom he deals. Paul always carried in his mind's eye the faces of the unlearned and the unbelieving. He insisted that a church service ought to be shaped with these people in mind. If they could not understand what was going on, they could take no part in the service and might think Christians out of their head. He was hotly vehement in his denunciation of the selfishness, which uses language that edifies the speaker, but does not enlighten the hearers. In a burst of magnificent earnestness, he says, In the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also, than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. Would that this Pauline common sense were abundant in all our pulpits! The choice of themes often bears witness to the same deep-seated sin. The true preacher lives for his people. To build them up is his supreme delight. 
For their sakes he shapes his reading and directs the main currents of his thought. Their aptitudes and attainments, their conscious wants and their unconscious needs, stand before him day and night like so many angels of the Lord sent to tell him of what sort his sermons ought to be. But not every minister listens to these angels. Personal tastes are often followed. Favorite lines of study are pursued with no consideration of the parish needs. Literary ambitions are cultivated, and scholastic inclinations gratified in wicked disregard of everybody but the preacher himself. Such a man becomes a specialist, and while cultivating his speciality, his people pay the bills. They come to the house of God on the Lord's Day, hungry for bread, and instead of bread they receive a discussion of a tangled problem in sociology, or the elaboration of a distinction which struck the preacher's fancy in his reading of the last new volume on ethics. It is advantageous and right for the preacher to have favorite studies, and to set aside particular domains of learning for special cultivation. But over the gateway of this garden the words should be written, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that both on entering and coming out of the garden he may be reminded of the obligation which surpasses all others, and be saved from the selfishness which favorite studies so insidiously induce. To persuade a clergyman to forsake his parish, the devil counts his greatest victory. If he can beguile him to scamper over the country giving his strength and time to miscellaneous audiences, while his own people remain at home, unshepherded and untrained, he wins a triumph over which the netherworld rejoices. An English writer of note has said that the devil in our day comes to ministers disguised as a railway train. He might have added that if a Pullman sleeper cannot catch a man, the printing press may. The prophet of the Lord may be seized with a mania for writing books. These books may have little relation to the gospel or to the needs of his congregation but the chapters of these books may be worked off on unsuspecting and defenseless saints as sermons. It has happened more than once that a preacher has allowed his pulpit ministration to be determined largely by the demands of his publisher. A man who perpetrates the chapters of his next book on his people, not because his people need these chapters, but because his publisher can use them, may excuse himself by saying that in his books he can serve a larger audience than could be assembled inside his church walls. But the average church layman, who has not debauched his conscience by any such sophistical argumentation, will say that the man who receives a salary from one set of people, for time and strength which he habitually gives to others, and who uses the pulpit simply as a source of supplies, while engaged in a work other than that which he has promised to perform, is a shirk and a scamp, even though he is a doctor of divinity, and pursues his rascality for the avowed glory of God. A minister owes much to his community, denomination, and country. The man who steadfastly stays at home, refusing to turn a wheel or lift a burden outside his own little parish, is the victim of a selfishness as loathsome as any of those above mentioned. Upon the Lord's wide work a minister must look with sympathetic eyes and to many companies of brethren he must give himself as occasion offers, with generosity and gladness. But he belongs first of all to his parish. The field in which he works is the world, and his church is the force with which he cultivates the field. 
to develop and consolidate this force and use it with increasing efficiency in subduing the world. This must be his supreme ambition, his constant study, his incessant care. To love his brethren over whom he has been appointed teacher and shepherd, this is the beginning and end of the whole matter. Let us not then love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. End of chapter 13